The following program may contain explicit language. It's Tuesday, September 8th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. California is beset by wildfires. 2.2 million acres burned, hundreds of small fires, at least 23 of what the National Interagency Fire Center considers large fires. Now that means at least 22 large fires had nothing to do with a superfluous celebration of chromosomic pairs, but at least one did, as Reuters reported. Officials in California are saying that a wildfire there may have been sparked by a gender reveal party for a new baby that went awry. Well, not a new baby. If you have a new baby on your hands, everyone can just see the gender. Blowing shit up will lack the usual wonder. I get it. People call fetuses babies. That's fine. It's cute. Then they think it's cute to have a so-called gender reveal party. And I say so-called because gender is a construct, sure, but also the so-called applies to the party part of it. Have you ever been to a gender reveal party? Oh, let's spend the day pretending that we, the non-parents, are one thousandth as captivated by this question as you, the parents, are. And then the parents who are hosting the party will spend most of their time trying to wrangle with the suspicion, I don't know if everyone here is as into this as I am. Look, expected parents, we honestly mean it when we say, congratulations, you're having a baby. And we, though obliged to ask the follow-up, we honestly are interested when we ask, do you know if it's a boy or a girl? And then when you say girl and we say, oh, that's wonderful, we mean that too. Of course, if you rewound the tape and you were to say, oh, it's a boy, we'd say, oh, that's wonderful. And we'd mean that also. So if you're thinking of basing an entire social event around the differences between two opposite answers that actually prompt the same exact response, you may wish to reconsider that event. Just dwell on the lack of tension there from a purely dramaturgical perspective. But I really mean it when I say that nothing in that exchange, you're having a baby, that's good, what's the gender, how wonderful, it's not disingenuous. We're not terrible people. We mean congratulations. We mean it's great that you're having a boy or alternatively a girl. And all of that is a perfectly agreeable interaction until what should be a mere exchange of pleasantries turns into an evite, a calendar entry, an afternoon spent in your backyard. Hours later, and now it's a girl. Could have told me that two weeks ago, Sarah. Oh, well, you have any snacks? Oh, what's that? You have guacamole and salsa? Well, I'm not going to tell you which I prefer until you come to my nacho reveal party. Sorry, sorry. I was just trying to be funny. Did it come across as insensitive? Let me know at my fleeting emotional state reveal party. Kablooey. Such a party sounds far-fetched but they would cause fewer wildfires. So USA Today's lead on the fire situation was intense heat, parched conditions, and high winds fueled record-shattering wildfires and strained the electrical grid across much of California on Monday. USA then quotes Randy Moore, regional forester of the USDA Forest Service Pacific Southwest region, saying existing fires are displaying extreme fire behavior. New fire starts are likely. Weather conditions are worsening. CNN had the exact same quote from the exact same person. But instead of the phrase record shattering, CNN notes that for the country as a whole, the number of fires recorded and acreage burned in 2020 below the 10-year average. There are 40,000 some odd fires this year. Last year up to this point, it was 43,000. Total acreage burned this year, 
4.5 million last year, 5.5 million. Okay. That's, I suppose, colder, rather extremely hot comfort for those getting burned out as we speak. But it's worth noting that not every natural disaster is unprecedented or record-shattering. Although I do think the fact that such devastation is usual actually makes it worse, not better. But you know who didn't think about that? Those expectant parents slash indifferent arsonists who had the gender reveal party. You know what? Maybe I'm being too harsh. How could they have known? Well, maybe because two years ago in Arizona, a wildfire was caused by a gender reveal party. A massive Arizona wildfire sparked by a soon-to-be dad's explosive idea to reveal a baby's gender. This video showing the start of the sawmill fire last year south of Tucson. And ABC 15's John Genovese is talking with forestry officials. And John, this is a lesson for everyone. John, let me take this part, and I will say, apparently not. On the show today, I spiel about why insulting the war dead as being suckers isn't just cruel, it's actually poor war strategy. But first, you know what it will take to repair from the fire? It will take money. And you know what it will take to rebuild the economy of Louisiana or California or Kenosha or Minneapolis or Portland, all the other areas that are wrecked by COVID and disaster or COVID and urban rioting? It's money. And do you know what? Of all those things that President Trump has frittered away, do you know what's the lead story of the New York Times today? It's money. Money is kind of important, isn't it? Crucial even. But our knowledge of money doesn't match its importance in society. So now we shall discuss a new book, Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing, with author Jacob Goldstein, who is the co-host of Planet Money. Would have been weird if he co-hosted Planet Driftwood. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Money inspires passions and feelings and even contradictions. In fact, it was the Beatles who said, I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy you love. Yet the same band just a couple years later said, 
They say the best things in life are free. You could tell that to the birds and bees. Just give me money. Well, we know where the Beatles landed. They made a lot of money. As for everyone else, I would recommend they look into a new book by Jacob Goldstein, co-host of NPR's Planet Money. It is called Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. Hello, Jacob. Welcome to The Gist. Hi, Pesca. Thanks for having me on the show. I know it confirms a lifelong dream, so I was happy to have you on. True. So I love this book. It was jaunty. It was comedic. It was short and informative. But I kind like of want to... Like you, but s- except for the short part. <laughs> yes, yes. I kind of want to skip past the first, I don't know, 6,800 years, okay? I'm and ready. I recommend, Start anyway. I recommend, Give me a year. I, yes. I recommend that everyone look into the, the Chinese and how coins, people used to shake coins in bags to get the dust fillings to fall off and how people in Mesopotamia used to press stone tablets, little hollow balls, all that stuff. Great stuff about money. And we learn a few things along the way. So before we even get to, I want to, I think, go to the second bank of the U.S. and start in that context. Okay. But I will ask you this. I would say the biggest idea about money, and this is the whole idea of the book, but up until then, you demonstrate four, five, six, seven times that the most important thing about money is just the belief in money. It's not even what it's founded on other than the belief, in fact, kind of the societal trust. Is that the big takeaway for the first couple thousand years? I think so. And I mean, today as much as ever, frankly, Right. Today, when money is based on nothing but trust, right? I mean, even when you're using gold for money, the gold part of the gold is just gold, right? The money part of the gold, what turns the gold into money is the shared belief that everybody's going to accept it when you want to buy something. So it's the belief in the thing is what turns it into money. Unless people think, well, it's the belief in the thing because it's backed up by gold. There are all these instances where, first of all, the amount of gold doesn't equal the amount of money. And we kind of fool ourselves and have up until really, really recently into the idea of backing money with something real other than trust and belief. Yeah, yeah. There seem to be a lot of instances where we wanted to, maybe this is human nature, we wanted to believe that our money meant gold or something like gold, but often gold, but it doesn't have to. I mean, like the roots of money are, I feel like way more sort of, I don't know, warm and fuzzy-ish, hippie-ish than, than you know, we typically think. It, it very much goes back to, you know, small, you know, non-industrial societies, cultures, having sort of norms about giving and getting, or like if you're going to marry somebody, or if you killed somebody, what do you got to give somebody? It's very much this kind of ground up, we're all going to get together and sort of decide what are the social norms. Like, that is where we should think of money coming from. That is where money comes from. It's what we all agree on. So let's take it to America. And what I want to ask you, because it relates to our present time, is, is there a through line about what we get wrong about money? I want to ask you about populism. So on the one hand, you have William Jennings Bryant. And this was a time when they were debating between the silver standard and the gold standard. And it wasn't imaginary which one they chose would have a real effect on who got richer and who got poorer. William Jennings Bryan was ever the populist, talked about not impaling, not crucifying him or America on a cross of gold. He was against the gold standard. McKinley, he was a uh, stout, austere man with very severe eyebrows who said, no, it's important and prudent to have a gold standard. So there was a clash of populism versus, I guess, uh, austerity or whatever the staid, tried and true method would be. Now let's look at Andrew Jackson, who was against the National Bank. 
he was a populist. But in both cases, were the populists more right than we knew? Were they essentially wrong? And is there something about populism that gives us an insight into the true nature of money or deludes us about the true nature of money? I like that you're going for the big theory. I mean, off the top of my head, let's take these one by one, because it's true that Jackson was a populist and that Brian was a populist, but what they were doing with respect to money was quite different. And so I'm a little bit wary of sort of just putting them into the same bucket, right? So you gave a very clear and correct explanation of Brian. He was wanted to get America off the gold standard so that there'd be basically more money, so that it was easier for farmers to borrow. I'm going to say he was basically right. Jackson was quite a different story. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was what, about 60 plus years earlier, and it was a very different setting. So Jackson uh, was president at a time when there was a private bank that had been chartered by Congress, the second bank of the United States, that was basically the central bank of America. It was analogous to what the Federal Reserve is today. And Jackson hated banks in general. He thought, as people think today, which I suppose is a classic populist argument, that banks, they just are there to steal from good, hardworking people. So to your point, I suppose that is a classic populist argument. He also particularly hated the Second Bank of the U.S. because it represented all of the elites, again, populism, that he hated. It represented, you know, Congress and the sort of federal government versus the states having all this power. And also it was this huge concentration of wealth. So... He basically killed that bank. The bank had a 20-year charter, as, as businesses did then. It was set to expire, and he refused to renew it. Congress passed a new charter, and he vetoed it. So, like, that was his big move. He killed the central bank. I mean, I think that was basically a bad call. His reasons were debatable. Certainly, his argument that if you're going to have the government charter a bank, why should private investors get richer from the goodwill of, you know, Congress passing this thing? That is reasonable enough. But what we wound up with as a country, we didn't have a central bank from that time, from the 1830s until the early 1900s when the Fed was chartered. And having a country without a central bank had its pros and cons, but it was basically a mess. So, I mean, if we're going to be super reductive, I would say Brian was basically right and Jackson was basically wrong. Okay, that's interesting. So people can have, you know, there were political considerations at the time who each of their constituencies were. Sometimes, you know, different oxes get gored. Yeah, but and I mean, one other is, thing yeah. with Jackson is like, so he kills the the... He kills the Second Bank of the U.S., which is, you know, bad for the investors of the Second Bank of the U.S., arguably bad for the U.S. economy. But it's not bad for bankers in general. What happens is then all the money that was flowing through the Bank of the U.S. is now going into these state banks. And so the state bankers are now getting rich, right? Killing the Second Bank of the U.S. was actually great for the state bankers. So it wasn't like he put all bankers out of business. He just put one big, arguably pretty useful bank out of business to the benefit of lots of other bankers. Do you think he misunderstood how money worked and how banking worked, or he was playing the politics and he played it right as he defined it? Uh, that's a good question. I'm going to say with a low conviction that he misunderstood. Right. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say with relatively low conviction. I mean, he was against paper money, right? He thought like gold and silver coins were money and everything else was like a swindle. And certainly in the long run, that is a bad idea for an economy. Right. But he did believe in things like infrastructure and he did believe in the things that money can buy. And I guess he believed in stimulus to some extent, or at least stimulus helped. His yeah. President. Wow. Now we're getting to the edge. So there was a whole debate at that time, right, over how much the federal government should pay for infrastructure. And frankly, I don't remember the details of that. But, you know, it does matter 
what you use for money, right? Like, it's not the same. The outcome is not the same whether you say money is gold coins or whether it can be paper money that is printed by banks, right? And there are trade-offs. Like, money is not neutral. And clearly, in the long run, if we tried to do money the way Andrew Jackson said, we would be poorer in, in real terms. We would have less stuff. We would have less material well-being if we followed Andrew Jackson's monetary advice. That I can say with high conviction. Today, the gold bugs or the people who are advising you to put your money in gold, what do they get right? What do they get wrong? Uh, well, there's different meanings of that term. So one, maybe the sort of, uh, you know, whatever, extreme version would say the dollar should be backed by gold, right? We should go back in some fashion to the gold standard. And it's interesting because I feel like the sort of a lay version of that is like, oh, that's an interesting idea. Let's consider it. And that is one case where economists who are famously, you know, uh, whatever, don't agree on anything, are uniformly against that idea. And they're basically against it because of the Depression and because pretty clearly the gold standard caused the Depression. So I have never heard a compelling argument for us to go back on the gold standard. The you know milder form of gold bug is uh, there's going to be a lot of inflation and gold is a good hedge against inflation. It holds its value against inflation. Uh, and so you should buy gold. I don't know. I mean, the price of gold has been going up, but I don't really have a view on whether right. the price of gold is going to go up. Right, right. That milder standard, mean, to me, just substitute gold for any other commodity. And sure, different commodities fluctuate to different degrees, but it's a different thing. Yeah, I mean, gold is a, is a convenient commodity, and it's not, you know, it, you can get a lot of value in a small space, and it doesn't decay. And it's weird because you don't use it for anything, right? Every other commodity, pretty much, its value comes from use. And gold is very strange. There are some uses in electronics or whatever, but almost all of its value comes sort of bizarrely from whatever. Again, it's sort of this money-ish thing, although to be clear, gold is not money, but it comes from this fact that for thousands of years, people have valued gold in this weirdly abstract way. So does the United States still have a bunch of gold in Fort Knox that's supposed to correlate to anything? The Federal Reserve Bank of New York has a bunch of gold underground in downtown New York. Uh, which mm -hmm. is kind of awesome. You can go down to like Liberty Street and walk on the gold. And I think that's still largely held for foreign central banks. There was this thing a few years ago, like not that long ago, five years ago or something, where Germany wanted its gold back and like took gold across the ocean from New York City or something. So that is the sort of government gold that, that I know of. Now, there is anxiety around money and money not being tethered to anything. And I don't know that I hear the anxiety expressed by the main guys who show up on CNBC, but you hear it on, you know, YouTube videos and maybe in some Fox business segments. And sometimes this expresses itself in the debate between, you know, loose money and tight money. And then things like quantitative easing comes into play. To what extent should we give credence to these worries? Well... I mean, it, I'll tell you this, the most, one of the most interesting, maybe surprising sort of money things to happen of the last, say, 10, 15 years has been how low inflation has been. After the financial crisis of 2008, I think you mentioned quantitative easing, that's the Fed basically creating like trillions and trillions of dollars. Lots of people were like, oh, if the Fed creates trillions and trillions of dollars, inflation is going to go bananas, which is not a crazy thing to say. but. It didn't happen. And in fact, inflation was like lower than the Fed wanted it to be. The Fed couldn't get inflation to come up much above zero for years and years and years. So to me, the interesting thing now, the really almost mysterious thing is why is inflation so low? And I mean, frankly, if you look at, you know, not what people are saying on CNBC, but you could look 
by looking at, say, you know, the various interest rates on different kinds of bonds that adjust for inflation and that don't. You can look at what people who are actually betting, what do they think inflation is going to be? And they think inflation is going to be really low. So, you know, I put more value in what people are betting their money on. And people betting lots and lots of money are betting that inflation for many years to come is going to be super low. So I want to ask you this. In the book, there are people who really understood money more than their contemporaries did. A guy named John Law. What a fascinating life. They got to do a biopic of that guy. So throughout history, there are people who understood money and they made money because of their knowledge of the field was greater than people around them. But have we, is that over? Is there now some people who have such a keen understanding of money that they're able to, I don't know, somehow manipulate it or work the markets or their financial geniuses in, you know, v- in such a fundamental uh, kind of meta way that that's where their ability to make money comes from? I think the rise of shadow banking over the last few decades is a version of that, a modern version of that. You have people creating money market mutual funds and things that exist sort of in the financial world. Basically, what happened was in the decades leading up to the financial crisis, this sort of parallel banking system, mostly used by financial institutions, sprung up. And it really was a new kind of money. And like, if you were an ordinary person, you touch it like if you have cash in your retirement account, you know, if you have a Schwab account or an E-Trade account or whatever, you have cash. It's not actually cash. It's probably in this weird kind of money market fund. And what these guys created was really a new kind of money that led to a lot of the problems in the financial crisis. And they did get super rich from creating it. So I think it's still happening. So cashlessness, let's talk about this. Sweden kind of invents paper money. The detail about Sweden has a coin so large that people have to strap it on their backs. Amazing. Amazing. So yeah, so Sweden had a lot of (laughs) copper, so they used copper for money. And this was in the era when, you know, the value of a piece of money was tied to how much the, the metal was worth. And copper was not worth that much. So they had these copper, I mean, Coins is probably not the right word, right? Because it was like... Tabletops. Yeah, tabletops. It would be a beautiful like kind of industrial tabletop over like a poured concrete floor. Yeah, no, they weighed like 30 pounds and people strapped them to their backs. And perhaps not coincidentally, the first paper money in Europe was in Sweden, right? Because they were like, wait, I've got an idea. Give me that copper tabletop and I'll give you this piece of paper that you can use as a claim check. And you could go out and just give somebody this claim check for the copper tabletop, and nobody has to deal with the copper tabletop. So I find it interesting that Sweden is now maybe going to be the first cashless society on Earth, although in America there's a lot of uh, blowback to that, claiming that going cashless discriminates against the poor. Should we be striving for cashlessness? Is, is that essentially a societal good? There is this... Harvard economist Ken Rogoff, who wrote this book, The Curse of Cash, that, you know, pretty well laid out the case against especially big bills, like hundreds and fifties. And it is amazing. I mean, his argument is basically hundreds are just crime machines, right? Like there are, I think, $40 bills for every man, woman, and child in America, right? $4,000 in hundreds, more hundreds than ones. And like nobody knows where they all are, right? That's the point of paper money is nobody knows where it is. And like what is the point of having all that money in hundreds? It's largely committing crimes, right? So yes. Uh, so there's <laughs> although that. our great our great innovation on that is Bitcoin, which just takes the idea of cash and says, "Oh, you thought that that was an easy mechanism to commit a crime? Watch this. Watch this. You, you could commit a crime on the internet. There's more to Bitcoin than that. Bitcoin people read the Bitcoin chapter. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think cashlessness. I, mean, I suppose it'll happen. You could get rid of big bills if cash goes away. One problem is lots of 
Poor people are relying on cash. The underlying problem there is not simply, oh, they need cash. The underlying problem is more people should have access to bank accounts, right? You basically get screwed if you don't have a bank account. You have to go to the check cashing place. You can get robbed. So people not having bank accounts is a big problem. Cash going away is sort of neither here nor there with respect to that, right? We should solve people not having bank accounts. Does studying the history of the money, has it inspired you to change the way you hold money, regard money, invest money, spend money, or anything else having to do with money? I guess it makes me a little more scared, right? Like, you know, maybe because crises are where it's interesting or where changes happen. I am, you know, financial crises and like collapses are probably more salient to me now than they were before, although I've always been a fairly nervous person. Um... So maybe that, uh, as I said, like more humility, like I really don't know what's going to happen. I, I I recognize more that the monetary regime we have now is like one in a long series that is not the beginning and is not going to be the end. So like I'm interested in what's going to happen next. I don't know if I'll live to see it. But Jacob Goldstein is the author of Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing, a delightful and jaunty read. I think he used jaunty in the intro and the outro. That just means it's really quite jaunty. Thanks, Jacob. That's good. It was really fun. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. Donald Trump, in a Labor Day press conference, denied the story that he had denigrated the military and described casualties of war as suckers and losers. He struck out at Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor of The Atlantic. The story is a hoax written by a guy who's got a tremendously bad history. The magazine itself, which I don't read, but I hear it's just totally anti-Trump. Trump probably hates all magazines because he thinks he should get a residual on the MAGA part. Trump, who has, of course, repeatedly spoken into microphones about his derision of John McCain and John McCain's capture, and who also mocked George H.W. Bush for getting shot down, even if he didn't say those exact things The Atlantic has quoted him as saying, has certainly said things very much like that, which brings it into perspective when he says, Who would say a thing like that? Only an animal would say a thing like that. Heel, heel, down boy. Actually, not a dog, more like a toad or a slug would say those things. Trump then admitted that the top people in the Pentagon just don't like him. I'm not saying the military is in love with me. The soldiers are. The top people in the Pentagon probably aren't because they want to do nothing but fight wars so that all of those wonderful companies that make the bombs and make the planes and make everything else stay happy. Perhaps laying the groundwork for an eventuality where top military brass come out and call Trump unfit. So this is a pre-hominem attack. 
last, Trump put the phony Atlantic story in context so that we can all judge it. It was a phony story, just like the dirty dossier, the fake dirty dossier, just like the Russia collusion, just like all of the other phony stories. You'd be just as crazy to believe this story about Trump calling dead troops suckers and losers as you would to believe that crazy story that the Russians aided him in trying to become president. Yes, the president is underlying. It's just that level of ridiculous. But I want to address this story from a different angle. You probably heard a lot about how this insult is horrible, demeaning, scurrilous, disparaging, offensive. What else? Dishonored that sacred ground. That's Nancy Pelosi. I was appalled. That's David Gergen. An abusive, contemptuous approach. And that was General Barry McCaffrey. Right. You've heard all manner of offense, genuine, heartfelt offense expressed by military veterans and veteran Trump loathers. And they're not wrong. But I want to take it from an angle other than one of honor, shame, and personal failings of the president. It is bad strategy. Not electoral strategy. War strategy. A robot who didn't understand morality would be able to advise against the president engaging in such talk. And it's because our veneration for the sacrifice of servicemen and servicewomen is the fuel for the perpetuation of the all-volunteer army. And the all-volunteer army is one of the greatest and most ignored accomplishments of the last 47 years. That might strike your ears as somewhat discordant, but it is absolutely true. The all-volunteer army is a great accomplishment in terms of war, to think that the greatest military force the world has ever known doesn't even have to use conscription. Also, all the experts will tell you that an all-volunteer military makes the military a much more effective fighting force, but it's also a great humanitarian feat to have this mighty military and no one forced into joining it. Maybe it's hard to countenance the juxtaposition of humanitarianism and a mighty military in the same sentence, but it's absolutely true and we don't appreciate that enough. And we have to understand that it's not the pay or the acquisition of job skills or networking opportunity that drives the military. It is the emotion, ideals, emotion-based ideals, ideals like duty, honor, and patriotism are woven into the functioning of our military. We in fact call it military service, not military employment or military jobs program. The call to service is more feeling than fact. The idea of honor, much analyzed and described in past centuries, largely ignored in ours, is also a feeling. And sacrifice is the most deeply felt concept of all. Trump is denigrating the ultimate sacrifice in his purported quotes. It's likely he doesn't even understand it. Remember when Kazir Khan, Gold Star father, contrasted his slain army captain's son with Trump, who Khan said sacrificed nothing? Trump was asked about that by George Stephanopoulos. How would you answer that, Father? What sacrifice have you made for your country? I think I've made a lot of sacrifices. Uh, I work very, very hard. I've created thousands and thousands of jobs, tens of thousands of jobs, uh, built great structures. I've done, I've had, I've had tremendous success. Uh, I think those are sacrifices. Oh, sure. I think they're sacrifices. I think having success, not a sacrifice. Building structures, that's civil engineering. That's not a sacrifice. And none of it is the sacrifice in the way a military family means. The people of the military believe, and it's more than a belief, they're convicted, this is their way of life, that sacrifice, and the ultimate sacrifice, is the ultimate meaningful act. 
If the president and commander in chief were to engage in talk that it is not a meaningful act, it would strip meaning from the act. And what would happen is it would hurt the military overall and all of us by extension. And maybe some of your sons or daughters yet to be born who may yet have to be conscripted. This notion were to take hold would challenge the entire foundation of why people serve. It weakens the institution of the military and therefore America, given that the military is the most respected institution in America. Kelly Denton Borhog, who is a professor at Moravian University, writes, quote, If soldiers' deaths are sacrifices, then they are meaningful. If they are not sacrifices, then their deaths may be meaningless. She writes from what I would glean to be mostly a place of antagonism toward the military, but she is clear and accurate when she says, quote, sacrificial discourse, by which she means the kind of talk about sacrifice, authorizes war by building value into the deaths brought about by war. So what Trump is doing is robbing the deaths of that value. Another professor, Catherine McClymond of Georgia State, notes, To reject the idea that someone has sacrificed something is not simply to engage in a definitional debate. It implies that what they lost has little value. And it's not a far stretch to conclude, ultimately, that they have no value. So that probably just strikes you as a horrible insult to the person. But here, my analysis includes the institution. Because if the military and the people who serve in the military comes to regard deaths in the military as no different from any other death, which is, say, sad for the family, maybe painful to the person, a micro drain on the economy to lose able-bodied people in their 20s or 30s. But if that happens, the ability of the military to recruit will be decimated. Obviously, if everyone were as selfish as Trump, there would be no military volunteerism. But even if Trump's ideas gain purchase and acceptability, then the military won't only be insulted, it will be imperiled. Our unfeeling robot would further take note of who the audience is for all the memorials and holidays and medals and remembrances that we have for the fallen. It is not, in fact, uh, the soul of the fighter himself or herself. It's not his or her family. It's everyone who's still serving or thinking of serving. So that we communicate the message of, if you give your life, you will be honored. Your family will be consoled. The nation will be grateful. Which in our case, bypasses the fact that our nation is run by a man who seems unfamiliar with gratitude. When my uncle, who was a World War II veteran, died, he was buried with military honors. And the phrase that was said at that funeral stuck with me. And that phrase was, the idea of a cause bigger than himself. He believed in a cause bigger than himself. People volunteer for things like the military because they believe in a cause bigger than themselves. If you're around the military, that phrase is a common phrase. If you're not, it's something of a foreign phrase. And if you're the kind of person for whom every bit of human contact is transactional, it's an incomprehensible phrase. And that's it for today's show. The show is produced by Margaret Kelly in Abstentia and Daniel Schrader in Point of Fact. Lori Galaretta hovered over our production in a vague but impactful manner. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, meaning she understands microphone levels and microphone placement and RSS feeds. 
but she also likes to brag about an area of knowledge that I'm not sure applies. I understand helicopters very well. The gist. You know, a lot of people thought the destruction of the Bikini Atoll was just a means of weapons testing. But I have uncovered this archival footage. Many miles away, the raging might of searing flame, crushing force, and deadly radioactive water is seen falling in a killing mist as the great circular wall of sea closes in on the guinea pig fleet. But the grateful mariners will go to their briny deaths, edified with the three-word phrase... It's a girl! Oomperoo-depperoo-doopperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>